0: Welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast, the official podcast of SCAF, the Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey. My name is David Rosales, and today I interview my friend Stéphane Gervais. Gervais, per hockey nickname rules, is the strength conditioning coach of the Laval Rocket, the AHL affiliate of the Montreal Canadiens. Previous to coming back to North America, Stéphane worked in France from 2017 to 2021. He also had a 10-year professional playing career and there are some great photos of him in some awesome McDonald's jerseys where you'd think he played for Team McDonald's but it was not Team McDonald's, it was a professional team in France. In this episode we talk about how speaking French and being bilingual has helped him as a coach, helped him connect with players. We talk about his transition to the AHL and a lot of what uh, makes up his role. He's not just necessarily the strength coach of the La Rocket, he also has some other self-appointed titles. And then we really go deep on uh, his return to play protocol. He gave a presentation on this in June at our at one of our SCAF events. So we're, we go deep on that topic and pretty much anything you could want to know about return to play. And that exact presentation you give, the recording, will be available to members. Hopefully before we release this, I cannot guarantee it. So if if you're a member and you want it, then email me and we'll get it to you. So without further ado, here Stefan Gervais. Gervais, welcome back to the Hockey Strength Podcast. How's it going?
1: Going well. Thanks for having me.
0: It's been a few years. I think it's been over two years since our last podcast episode. In that time, you have a new job, and you're living on a new continent. So you're now the the strength coach with the Laval Rocket in the AHL. But but what do you do in the summer? Where are you right now?
1: Um, yeah, so I'm in uh, I'm in Montreal. So once the the season ended, uh, I joined the Montreal Canadiens for for their off season. So I spend uh, spend my week here in in Montreal working with um, the players that are here. We have some. Some some of the guys with the Habs, some of the prospects. Uh, so I'm working with Dale and, and Adam. Dale's the head strength coach here, and Adam's the the director. So all three of us are are here and and you know getting on the ice as well with with Adam Nicholas. He's the director of hockey development. So it's been it's been full throttle since the season ended. We had a little bit of a break, and then uh, full throttle in here. And and yeah, it's it's been it's been great to. To be able to collaborate with these guys because in season we don't get to spend uh, that much time together when i'm in laval and they're so busy here in, in montreal so it's good for for building and talking shop and, and continuing to grow
0: yeah i think when, first thing i noticed when i saw you you got the north america job i was like oh it's perfect it's the only it's the only french speaking place and and for those of you for those of you who aren't familiar with jerves he was uh he he was working in france with the under 20 national team and some other projects so how's it, how is it like working in a, in a bilingual city? You know, how is it be, like, do you use French a lot on your, in the daily basis there in Laval with the players or is it still mostly English?
1: Well, when I first got here, I would be, like try to be really deliberate. If it was someone from Quebec, I would speak French to them like right away. Um, just that's like even a sign of respect over here is to conserve that French language. So I'd speak French to them right away. So when I got, to Montreal, I spent the first six weeks here with the Canadians. Uh, we went through uh, rookie camp, then we went through main camp and preseason, and I was speaking French quite a bit because there was a lot of French guys here and a lot of guys that were going to be playing in Laval, uh, also in Quebec. And then as soon as we got to Laval, mid October, uh, J.F. Ul, who is a Quebecois, he's our head coach there. He made it a point that English was going to be the main language as a sign of respect for our european players and and everyone like that that everyone was speaking the same language that they knew what was going on there wasn't any kind of clicks being being developed or anything like that so during the year in laval i actually spoke uh, a lot of english and so much so that i went when i went back to france for a quick little vacation here this summer they noticed my my accent had changed to like more that north american english sort of accent so uh, I didn't speak as much French as I thought, but living in Montreal, it's still very French. It, you can get by if you don't speak it, but it's it's a lot more French than I than I thought it would be. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been pretty good. They 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 picked me up pretty quick as a, a French France accent, which is which is kind of funny because when I go to France, they're like, Oh, this guy's got a really messed up accent.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was telling you we were talking about this yesterday. So I'm currently in Spain and also in particular in a region of Spain called Catalunya, which for the geopolitical context, it has a lot in common with Quebec because they have their own language called Catalan and everyone speaks Spanish. But, you know, you speak Catalan kind of like as a sign of respect. When people ask me if I speak Catalan, I say I know enough to earn respect. Um, so I, I was <laughs> in a, I know that's something you kind of relate to, too, with with even like learning languages elsewhere. So how is how is being bilingual, you think? Obviously, living in France, you had to had to know French to to work in that program. But even in North America, how does being light, bilingual help you as a strength coach?
1: Well, it, early on, like the first thing that I tried to do when I got to this organization, and a lot I think a lot of people do, is try to create a, a connection with 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 the players, with the coaches, with with everybody. So having the ability to speak speak French, maybe these guys from from Quebec have it's their first language so you can create a connection a little bit easier that way and from there you know you just try to build build a relationship so i think that's it's an advantage to have uh, have the ability to do that and and also be a resource like be a resource like for for the english speaking guys the american guys like hey like what does this mean like hey can you help me there's someone on the phone that's asking about uh, My rent or, you know, something like, so it, it it helps in the day to day things to, to be able to give guys a hand with that. But, uh, initially to create that initial connection, uh, is, is also, is also awesome.
0: Yeah. Something I really like doing. I remember when I was, when I was at UMass Lowell, we had a freshman who was, he was, he was from Slovakia. And I made, a, I also love languages as, as well. And I, I made a point to like, learn, learn a few words, of Slovakian him. And I would always, would always have a connection. And I would say, I didn't remember, it was like three years ago, but I remember Dobre is like, good, Dobre a ti, good. like good, and you right? <laughs> just like learn a few words. And immediately him and I had that connection. I know that's something you relate to, especially also more context. You played a, a while in, uh, in, you played a lot of pro hockey throughout Europe. So, I mean, did you pick up just like a few words here and there? Maybe, maybe some, some good swear words in, uh, in just <laughs> random languages.
1: Yeah, in Europe I played I played 10 years. So through those through those years I saw I played with Finnish players, Swedish, German, Czech, Slovak. So yeah, I made it a point to to at least be able to learn to say a few things. So if the I played with a lot of Slovaks the first year. So it was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, swear words mostly they they said. So I I learned a, a bit of that and you know we, we have a couple slowbacks here so it was it was a, it was a quick little connection right away using some of those words they start laughing like how do you know that i uh, in the german guy i i learned uh oh christmas tree in german so oh tannenbaum so it's like it's so stupid but but still like you, you make a guy laugh you make him feel more comfortable if he's new on the team with with something in, in their language and then i play with a lot of finnish guys too so i end up learning a finnish uh, drinking song that i can play on the guitar which uh which is always pretty surprising i don't always carry the guitar around but i i'll toss it on the, the ipad and And, uh, and they'll hear it and they'll be like, how do you know this song? So it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's just a little, little tool to, you know, enhance those connections.
0: Yeah, we've been talking so much the last few years, just as an industry about communication and coaching, connecting with the players, man, if you've got a, if you've got a player who speaks something like Finnish, which is notoriously one of the hardest languages to learn. If you're not a native speaker, that is one of the fastest ways to like, to like really connect with someone. So I think that's something that's really helped me really helped Jerv. So if you work with international players, you know, take a moment, like, learn a few words and language learning is all about pattern recognition. Right. And you'll start to kind of, you'll start to get in a group. I say like the first two or three where you're just learning a few phrases that are the hardest. And then you're like, okay, I can, I kind of get the rhythm down. You'll make some new sounds with your tongue. You never thought possible and sure. They might laugh at your accent, but again, that's all just part of the relationship building.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's good. It makes them feel comfortable coming, especially guys coming into Montreal. If you know, they're coming in from, from Finland, for example, and it just makes, uh, makes them feel comfortable right away to, to kind of help them help them relax and then again it'll be easier for their for them to perform uh, on the ice and in the gym if they're a lot more relaxed so if that can help it hey like it doesn't take much to to try to learn a, a few words
0: yeah absolutely and the last thing on language learning i'll say is i remember when i when Devin found out i spoke spanish Devin mcconnell when i was working for him he said oh you should if you ever want a job in baseball you can totally have a job in baseball right and i think like a language We'll always open doors for you. We'll always open doors to you. So I, if you're in hockey, French could probably be useful, but who knows other, other language useful hop on Duolingo, five minutes a day. I think at the very, what, what's the worst that could happen. You're just going to learn how to, how to, how to say hello to, to new people who come across your gym.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Getting better every day with something, right?
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, most of us are scrolling on Instagram anyway. So I think, uh, replace that with a little bit of Duolingo can maybe help us out as strength coaches. Let's uh let's transition to your your first year here in in uh, in the AHL. What's been what's been one of the biggest differences? I know it's a different age group, obviously a different league. What's been one of the biggest challenges you faced as a as an AHL strength coach so far?
1: Challenges? I don't I don't know. I mean, like there's been a lot of differences. I would say uh, a challenge. I think anytime you leave an organization and join a new one, the the main challenge is you know getting to know everybody and getting to know how how people work and working together and, and collaborating. So, you know, there's the period of adaptation with that. And that comes with, with any change. Um, if we're more like talking about like the, the details of, of an AHL season uh, or the differences with, with Europe is like right away, I had automatically like a lot of uh, sports science at <laughs> at my disposal. So I had catapult, I had, um, you know, force plates and gym, awares, like just all this kind of stuff that I didn't have before. So that was awesome because that was really what i was looking for in in this new experience i kind of hit a a ceiling in in where we could go with with that over in europe just where where i was working and now all of a sudden i have all of the tools so that was pretty challenging i guess to get comfortable with all of those tools at the same time and then eventually put them to good use because if we're just taking in and, and using doing jumps every week but we're not looking at the data we're putting catapults on guys and we're not even, you know, looking at the data, then, you know, what's the point of doing it? So, uh, getting comfortable with all that was, was a period of adaptation. Now I'm, I'm so happy that I've gone through it. Uh, but it was basically a crash course and okay, here you go. You are the strength coach, but you're also the sport scientist at the same time. You are also the assistant, uh, to the equipment manager, uh, on, on road trips. So, get into the get into the the other team's barn and it's like okay uh you're gonna go do the dry stalls or you're doing this you're hanging up wet gear like a lot of things go into the the role in in the ahl so that was a lot to adapt to and it's you know someone told me that's like a prerequisite to to get to the next step like there's a lot of things in in north american pro hockey that are way different than than they are in europe so i'm i'm so glad that uh I've gone through the the harder times and and kind of getting through there. and Know a lot more what to expect in in the second season going in.
0: Yeah, with with all getting all that technology at once. Talked a little bit about this with on our last episode with Tim Labazier about like, like data data doesn't always get managed. Or I can't remember what the quote he said or or what one of us said is right. So how did you how did you think about applying that? Did you apply all of it at once? Did you start with one thing? What was your thought process behind like okay I've got all these I've got all these toys. How am i going to make good use of them and maybe if there's like a specific example that would help kind of demonstrate it
1: yeah so i leaned on adam uh, douglas a lot he's the director of sports science and performance for the montreal Canadiens. so he's adam worked with catapult for you know like i forget like maybe four or five years um so he was a specialist in there. i didn't go through catapult to to do the onboarding adam did it directly with me uh, so that was really helpful and anytime i had like technical questions, he was always available to to help answer those like pretty quickly. Um, And then building out visuals and and stuff like that, that could speak to the coach a little bit more was definitely, you know, he was a big part of that. We did a 10 game review of the catapult data as well. So Adam took the lead on that and we did a, we did a call with our coaches. So once that kind of got the ball rolling as it, now you can start to get more comfortable. We didn't need him for, for those 10 game reviews I was having conversations with the coach like on a on a regular basis of what we we're seeing and and kind of what we wanted to achieve force plates uh in the hl we had like 28 guys at, at some point so trying to run through all these guys getting jumps in uh on the monday after a day off was a bit of a challenge but we're able to get it the guys kind of got into the groove and, and they got pretty comfortable with it but using that data i'd say didn't happen right away, but it did allow us to have a good overview of, you know, say I I think we'd looked at it maybe a month in. So we had about four jumps for every guy and we could start seeing trends or, or say a guy got injured. It would help us look at, you know, his baseline and asymmetries and stuff like that. But it wasn't like day one. Okay. I was breaking down all these guys. Okay. This guy needs this. He's landing a little bit more to his right. Like all that stuff. It took a little while to, to get in the swing of things of, of that. But I found, you know, we use this all throughout the year. I got more comfortable using it, but I found the most use was with uh, our return to play guys and and using the technology to ramp them up progressively. Like, for example, we had a player who was out uh, with like, you know, he had knee surgery, hadn't played this season yet, and we're ramping him up to play. And we're like, well, what are these game loads have to look like? Uh, and we went back and, and found he had data from from last year with his catapults. We're like, oh, OK, so we took his his average game load and said, OK, like we got to ramp up. We got to get to this number. So let's let's ramp him up gradually. But originally, if had we not had that data, we had nothing to compare him to because he hadn't played a single game that that season yet. So, you know, that was something we were looking at. And then same with the force plates we used for a few different things. So it wasn't just jumps. Uh, we. I have a standing desk. It's kind of funny. I have a standing desk uh, in the gym and we had a player we wanted to test the 90-90 ISO test. So I lowered the standing desk and propped him up on a couple small small boxes and it ended up putting him in perfectly in the 90-90 position. And we were able to start uh, collecting data uh, on his hamstring because he had a hamstring tear. So. We were able to use that with some of the tools. I mean, there's other ways easier to to do the 99 test, but I, the boxes we have are like soft boxes. So there was too much noise in, in in the data. But the nice hard standing desk was absolutely perfect. Standardized. It's the same height every single time. You know, it was really useful for for the return to play for for this player, and also useful for for the doctors seeing his progression and eventually clearing him. And he returned to play in uh, in the playoffs.
0: That is the most AHL strength coach anecdote ever because when you, you have to use your own desk as, as part of the testing protocol.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Learning, learning, learning experience. And you know, you you do what you can to, to try to to get some of these objective measures. And if it's, uh, it can help convince, uh, you know, the, the doctor that he's, he's ready to play. Like this is, this is what they, they want to see. They want to look at the asymmetries and, pretty serious injury and to show okay like yeah he's good he's good to go so that's that's what we did
0: let's let's talk about return to play because you gave a presentation on this so we're going to be barring a bit from that this presentation is going to be available to our members so they will get all the videos we're going to try to fill in as much details as we can verbally but understand that obviously some stuff is just going to get lost by the format so first of all how do you think about return to play you know from like principles first. So I, I know some things you mentioned in the presentation were that number one, it's about keeping hockey present and then number two, doing as much as possible on the ice and then working with the medical staff. So you know, how did you develop those as kind of your big overarching themes for, for a return to play protocol?
1: Well, the keeping hockey present part for me is crucial because, you know, when, it, when the initial injury happens, like it let's, let's take the pre-injury pre-injury. Uh, The player's routine is the same as everybody else's. He's he's going to practice. He's got his team workouts. They have their team meals together, doing video together. They're playing sewer ball. He's taping a stick. And he spends the majority of the time with his teammates and with with his coaches. He gets injured. That whole routine completely changes, completely shifts. Now the time he's spending doing his doctor's appointments, he's doing x-rays, MRIs. He's getting therapy, rehab. He's got now he's got individual sessions, perhaps depending where he is with with the strength coach. So now he's spending the majority of time with the therapist, doctors, strength coach. And, you know, we're all great people, but that's not where he wants to spend his time. So in a way, the player loses his identity, his or her identity, like instantly with with an injury. So that that routine, we try to keep hockey present as much as possible so that. They don't get too far away from this so that if we can keep them in a video session then great like that's awesome if if it's a, a lower body injury and we're able to have them shoot have them tip pucks we have like a tennis ball machine that our goalie coach uses for the goalies we put players out in the hallway tipping pucks like they have a lower body injury but it didn't stop them from from doing stuff like that it's working some some hand-eye coordination but it's it's really about just helping maintain that identity and and keep them connected so you know we got a guy in a walking boot the we got a net set up he was allowed to shoot we we kept them shooting like little things like that were 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 very helpful i'd say so that's a, that's our first step in in trying to uh yeah keep hockey present
0: yeah so number one it comes back to you again kind of like this art of coaching it's it's about almost it, it's funny because uh, like an injury is is a physiological thing but our your number one priority is, is the psychology, right. And, and taking care of the athlete.
1: Yeah. So think about think about like a player gets hurt. He walks in, like everyone knows he got hurt and they say, first thing you see is like, Oh, okay. There's the injured guy. It's like, Hey, how's your knee next guy? Hey, how's your knee? Oh, how's your knee doing? It's not, Hey, how are you doing? So the player becomes the injury. He is now the injury. How's your head? How's your head? Like the worst I've seen is like with concussions how's your head? How's your head? Like everyone's asking them and if they start asking me who doesn't have a concussion, I might start thinking like, no, I do have a little tension in, in my neck. Like actually, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure how my head is like, so it, it gets very, very overwhelming. And that's, that's a really tough part about, you know, the player will lose his identity with that as well. So, um, one of the approaches that we take and, and, you know, one of the reconditioning experts in the industry is Bill Knowles. And, and I really like the way he looked at it. He, he goes, the can do versus can't do. So when we're talking to our therapists and stuff like that, we take the approach of not focusing on on just the injury of what he can't do but more of the whole athlete and and what he can do. So if we take that approach, it's a little bit less how's your knee, how's your knee? It's like, "Oh, you know, how are your arms today after that tough workout you did or or something like we're kind of getting away from of of that part of, you know, just like the player wants to not always talk about about his, his injury he'd rather talk about something else and it's the human nature though like you can't they all care about the guy but the way the they're they're asking about it is is kind of it's it's really it's heavy it's heavy on the player
0: yeah that's such a great point and and okay what about big point number two as much as much as possible on the ice
1: so as much as possible on the ice is if it's an upper body a form of upper body injury we've seen a lot like the it depends on the injury, but if it's a wrist injury or or something like that, or hand, there should not be a reason that he can't skate and continue to maintain his fitness levels, but also even make progressions. And if, you know, you have to identify what we can work on as well. So this is all medical. Like they're going to say, they're going to say, yes, he can skate. Okay, perfect. He can skate. Any restrictions skating wise? No, he can do whatever. Just can't handle a puck. Can't shoot and all this. Like, okay, perfect. So there's a lot of areas we can improve on. If it's already a great skater, then, you know, great, let's keep him at that level and keep his fitness levels up and his speed and power. Maybe it's someone who needs to work on their speed. Let's take advantage of this time and, and work on that. So, and that also applies to off ice. If we had a player this year who injured their lower body and they also had two previous like shoulder surgeries. So we said, okay, let's take advantage of this time to to build these shoulders up a little bit more. Now we have some time. So I take the same approach on the ice as I as I do off the ice to identify a, a quality that maybe they need to improve on and, and maintain as much as possible. But the upper body injuries depends on what it is, but upper mostly like if we can keep them skating and keep their legs, those guys come back to their performance, like back to performing at their level a lot quicker than lower body injuries. I think everyone would probably agree with that just because they've been able to maintain the, the skating the whole time. So if we're allowed to do it, we do it we keep them on the ice as much as possible
0: the other big thing with return to play is is there's a wide range of of depending on a strength coach's like actual title and and what type of program they're in. you know in a, a lower level program athletic trainers ideally are available but a lot of times it's like oh just go the go see athletic trainer it becomes kind of not our problem and, and at other levels you know it's It's all integrated and things are working together. So at your level, the AHL, who else is part of that team that returned to play team and creating that protocol? And what is your, you know, what is your piece of the puzzle in creating that? And who else are you working with?
1: So in, in Laval this year, we had our two athletic therapists, there's Glenn and Seb, so they're definitely like they're, they're right in the trenches on, on all of, all of that stuff and, and driving the, you know, what we're, what we're allowed to do. But the main thing that we try to do, and I think other organizations, like if you use that they probably do the same thing is is establishing the parameters because we don't always have the athletic therapist that knows how to skate or can skate or the strength coach. So if we're able to like create these parameters and we're all on the same page, it'll facilitate the integration of different staff members. For example, if We have a bunch of different departments depending on the the stage that the player is in. So the early stage, like let's take them from right away from from, say, like the the surgeon, Okay, the surgeon says, okay, you can begin doing isometrics in seven to ten days. But that's going right to the athletic therapist who is the specialist in that department. And now they are choosing the, the exercises. So if we can establish parameters for the on ice, then. We could like say, I'm not available to do it. We could have the assistant coach step in and do it. If, if he was available and just say, these are the parameters, but the parameters have to be established by, by the medical team. And then the execution can be by whoever is really qualified. So in in our case in Laval, if I'm available to do the on ice stuff, I will go with the parameters that were set by, by our therapist if I'm not available, we've had our therapist go on the ice as well, but we've also had our assistant coach go on the ice as well and cover for that because we're, we're spread a bit thin. Like if I'm not, if I'm on the ice, then I'm not in the gym. So you know, I can't always be in, in two places at once. So we'll have, we'll have support from, from other staff members, but with a clear picture of, of what the training parameters are and where we're trying to go with that. So if we're able to, to do that, then, you know, that allows freedom for each of us to, to build out specific drill progressions within the accepted framework.
0: Right. So you have everything that's, that's I think it's a really good way to think about it is, is the, the medical team sets the, like, here's what's allowed. Here's what's not. And then kind of within that, it doesn't really matter what your job is. Like if you're, whether you're a strength coach or an assistant coach, you can, you can help them on the ice with, with that type of stuff.
1: If there's no one dedicated to that position and a lot of teams don't have a specific like on ice return to play or reconditioning or return to performance you know all these different titles but sometimes it's a skills coach that does it but so if it's the skills coach that's doing the 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 on ice return to play then if they respect the parameters that are set by the medical team and this, this is a skills coach so they're very comfortable on the ice and and have a able to build out a lot of drills then it should be it should be very easy but the collaboration it comes down to to that it, you have to be able to to collaborate uh effectively as as a team and then be able to give feedback and 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 that's how you you grow as a as a as a team as a performance and medical department and everyone's got their hand on it but it's uh a lot of communication it, it always comes back to communication
0: yeah and and that's why we're we're seeing Kind of this director role in the NHL and in professional sports in general, like really become more and more important because it's it's not just about like having the the term people are using right now. It's like not having one in silos, right? And I mean, like you're the strength coach, you're the medical person. It's like we're all kind of a team, and and these these roles blend together, and we have to communicate and work together in the most effective way. Okay, so you have your framework within your team setting, and now you as the strength coach, what are like what are some of the ways you think about in terms of like drill selection, whether it's whether it's on the ice or, or off the ice? How do you think about you know selecting those drills for the players obviously it depends so, on injury but
1: yeah it, everything always depends on injury and but i i try to put in i try to put three components into building these on ice drills in the return to play with the goal of having them transition easier back into in into the uh team practice because we can check a lot of boxes like oh you can stop start accelerate uh decelerate but let's put them, try to, let's try to put them in the context of, okay, he can do all those things, but let's get those reps in and have him integrate the team practice seamlessly as opposed to he did all these things. Now he has zero timing and, and has just check boxes the whole way. So I try to have one, like a skill component. If we can add a shot to, if say, we're checking the box of, of whatever, it could be deceleration or stops and starts and change of direction if we can add a skill component to that which could be some stick handling or a shot then we'll add it. Second one would be position specific movements. So if we're working with a D man, we'll try to incorporate some puck retrievals and just put him on the ice where he's going to where he's going to be when he's playing and when he's practicing. So get him in these areas on the ice so he's more comfortable going through that and adding some outlet passes and stretch passes and help him with his timing and stuff like that and then the third is a conditioning component so we try to have uh some sort of fitness component you know we're working with work to rest ratios if it's whatever 15 seconds on 45 seconds off stuff like that so in trying to incorporate skills position specific movement patterns and conditioning is are the three things that we try to to put into our drills sometimes we can sometimes it's only a conditioning component sometimes uh you know it's it's maybe just stationary skills uh and then we try to measure it with with either heart rate monitors or or catapult our accelerometer uh, to get their movement so we can get their loads and their their training load, their workloads and intensities, and then use that to to try to progress them uh, gradually to get back to the level that they were at prior to their injuries.
0: Does this happen? This is a logistical question. Does this happen in a separate session? A lot of the times like, is it OK, you're going to go on the ice or someone's going to go on the ice with these players now? Or is this happening like during team practice, you know, in a corner of the ice. So how's how does how this work work out logistically? Because everyone has you know, ice is expensive, obviously. We we all have different access to ice time and ice slots as well.
1: In the HL, we have we have ice for the injured players, which is awesome. So it's usually before the team practice. In the past, like in, in Europe, we didn't have that. So I would be coming on at the end of practice. And the coach would say, I could have the neutral zone. Okay, great. Tons of stuff we can do in the neutral zone. And then the the guys would be like in the two offensive zones would start kind of creeping into the neutral zone a little bit. So like I pretty much had like the red line to use. So I developed some, uh, some isometric holds that guys would do on the, just gliding along the red line, like early, like return to play stages. So they glide along the red line. And then my objective measure would be like how many times his foot came off to the left or to the right uh of the line I was like wow this is just trying to be creative and, and use what we got here. So I still use that actually as a kind of like a screening uh tool for, for guys coming back early in early stage uh like return to play on the ice have them go along the the line in an ISO hold and film it and see what it looks like and count how many times he goes off to the left and the right and we got an objective measure there with with no technology.
0: I love that it's like the standing desk equivalent. It's the standing desk. Being creative with measures, even if you don't have access to cadet and that sort of stuff. And then once players get to the point, so you have them for a separate session. Once they move into practice, so let's say they're like typical examples, they're wearing a purple jersey, they're wearing an off-color jersey. Are you still involved in 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 that process of getting from like okay, now they're practicing at some capacity, getting back to to playing bling?
1: So that that really depends. So a lot of times we can we can clear them for team practice so they can go out and do probably it really depends on the injury but we can get them cleared for team practice they'll join the team they'll wear a different color jersey and they'll do all the the non-contact drills uh if it's not if it's you know if that's what the case is and then they progress gradually what we look at is at the end of practice okay we, this kind of practice was to prepare the team for the game for example the player is not doing the injured ice but we saw that on his workloads for the practice, it's extremely low because he couldn't participate in the fourth, fifth and sixth drill. So sometimes the assistant coach, we can, we can coordinate it well. Like I can say, Hey, like, can you get this guy a little bit more ice? Or they'd already planned to, to skate him a little bit more and we'll have the catapult, we can get the catapult on the bench and and they can look at it And let's say, let's try to get him up a little bit higher in, in the workloads today, because he could in, you know, in a way start to be deconditioned. In, in this return to play process, whereas we need them going. So having to measure, like being able to measure that is, is a good way to to really know. So that's something we do uh, on the road, you know, a morning skate or something like that, like the injured player might skate with the extras, the guys that aren't playing in the game. And so that'll be usually run by our assistant coach. And again, you know, within the parameters, but uh, it, it's a lot about managing in like at this level, you don't have 50 players, so you can really be individualizing things with players and and get down to the little details. So if we know we need to progress this guy up and we have some set markers like that, we want to progress him to then, you know, we get everyone helping that process as much as possible. So on the road or at home after a practice, guys are doing extra work to, to try to keep climbing and get closer to returning to the lineup.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a theme I'm noticing as, as you explain the different parts of this process is having checklists is whether it's the checklist from your team, like as like here from the medical staff, like here's, here's what's allowed. And then within that, you're kind of branching it like, okay, you need to check those three boxes. And then within that it's, it's, there's like a whole list of skills, whether it's like acceleration, deceleration, et cetera. Is that something you consciously thought of as like, oh, we need checklists or did that, is that just how, how your return to play system evolved naturally?
1: I think it's, I think across across the board, most organizations work like that. I think like from a medical standpoint, they need to check these boxes and progress from there. And it does depend on the injury. Something I look at more as a framework for, for a lot of things, like, in a, and I'll put it like super, super basic. I think in my presentation, I have a slide, like our on-ice progressions follow pretty much the same framework and it doesn't really matter what kind of injury it is. So we'll start with like a single effort. Can he do that without any pain or was he able to execute it? He was okay. Now let's progress to multiple efforts. Like it's super, super basic. And then the second one, if we look at like isometric, so that single leg glide on the single leg squat, hold on the red line, for example, he could do that. Okay. Perfect. Isometric or controlled. No problem. Now what do we do we add some speed and make it more dynamic and then another part would be anticipatory or predetermined patterns movement patterns like that's a not a part of a hockey game but in a return to play setting like we want to make sure that there's no reactivity right away on certain drills and then once they can master these these drills in a predetermined form then we start to add reactivity then they come up to the cone and we give them a a visual cue or a verbal cue or or something like that to to progress from there so single effort to multiple efforts isometric and controlled to dynamic and fast and anticipatory to to reactive or if you want to call it predetermined routes to to reactive
0: love it any any last thoughts on return to play stuff you've clearly so again Steph's really thought thought through this a lot so much that he's given a presentation. So we're going to try to make that presentation available, but aside from being able to watch the presentation, see the videos actually go through all of it and see the physical checklists, which some of them we will put in the show notes, anything else on return to play?
1: Uh, I, I think the biggest thing is, is those, those daily talks with, with the medical team and, and then, you know, in, integrating the, the coaching staff uh, once the player is progressing a little bit more, but, Like in return to play, everyone cares so much about, about the athlete. They want to help so much, but there's different phases where different people play a bigger role. So like in an early return to play, you know, so there's the doctor, but then it's right away, it's going to be the therapist who's spending the most time with that athlete. And I might have 10% of the time where we do maybe a little upper body workout or something like that. I don't need to be involved as much as the therapist does, so it's okay for me to be, you know, back there and not contributing as as much as as much as the therapist, because they go through each each step. So I think, and I, you know, I'm not saying I, I I see it, but I know it does exist where everyone wants to do so much that they're almost getting in the way of each other and it might help to to step back and it's like okay the therapist is doing his job like we don't need to do five upper body workouts like this is a four to six week thing or something like that like back off a bit and then he starts to transition and then maybe they're getting a little bit less treatment uh and then now you know like the therapist is focusing on other people like they, you have more time to do that i'm working more with this guy and then now it's okay he's transitioning to to the coaching staff like into practice you did your part that's good like You know, you put your energy towards someone else, but we all want this guy to get back so badly. We all feel so invested that we all want to do as much as we can, but sometimes maybe we could, we don't have to do so much. Depends on where the player is in, in his, uh, in his return to play phase.
0: Yeah. And sometimes bring it back to the psychological, that poor player has got like 15 coaches (laughs) like tell him to do all these things. Like, you know, that player's stressed out and and just as mad that they're not playing. Right. Probably a, a lot more upset than we are about it. I cannot yeah, let sure. the uh, the the equipment manager comment go. So, so, so how did you? I, I don't even know what question to ask. What was your? How did you end up being the uh, the assistant equipment equipment manager on the road?
1: Assistant to the equipment manager.
0: Assistant to. Okay, got it. Got it. <laughs>
1: so uh, that's the job. That's the that's the role. Everyone's got help out. So we go on the road in, in, in the in the American League, there's there's two equipment guys. Uh, our medical guy and, and me so we're four if we can help we unpack their gear and, and unpack the trunks and get set up if we if it's just two people it's going to take them a long time so everyone ships in even our coaches as soon as we get to a new city they set a timer like okay how fast can we unload this bus so they help us unload the bus and and then you know once we we set up all the stuff after but they help us unload and and we can get in and out like out, off the bus in in five minutes all the trunks and everything like that so Everyone's got to help out. It, it, it'll be. It makes for, you know, you build you build bonds like that too with as a staff. And, but yeah, so I I really took over the the role of setting up the change room. So getting the hoodies, the shoes, and and all that stuff. So, I joke around with our uh, with our equipment guy Simo, and and just say that I'm the assistant to the the equipment manager and and director assistant director of the the change rooms.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So as you look forward to this year, this summer, even, what's something that you're you're really excited about? Oof. Pretty well, on, excited. On the spot. I mean,
1: yeah, that's that's a big one. Uh I know we got some some prospects coming in here in Montreal.
0: How about this? How about this? this maybe month. this is a better question. How's it been? What's something you've learned this summer, this summer being in Montreal for a few weeks or a few months for a few months?
1: And then uh, is it
0: working working with other strength coaches instead of it being all your own thing or?
1: So this summer, this, this summer has been awesome because I've been on the ice a lot with, uh, our director of hockey development, Adam Nicholas, like I've been on the ice with him every skate I can. And sometimes I'm pushing pucks. Sometimes I'm helping out in, in the drill, but listening to his coaching cues, um, and learning what he's teaching them is going to help us speak the same language and also gives me, again, more tools to incorporate into our return to play with the guys I'm working with on the ice. So that's been, that's been awesome for, for learning and for growth. And then just talking shop with, uh, with Dale and and Adam, our, our guys here in in Montreal is, is a huge opportunity for growth as well, because we can challenge each other and, you know, learn more about why someone thinks that way and start integrating other, other ways to there's there's a bunch of ways to skin the cat right so there's there's a lot i've been learning just in-house here from just conversations with with the guys and then on ice has been great and then development camp we had i was on the ice quite a bit as well helping out there so yeah it's it, it's been it's provided a lot of a lot of growth uh, already this summer and then i'm looking forward to the the prospects and the the players coming in a little bit early towards the end of august i think and leading right into to training camp, and
0: then preseason, and then they're gonna sh- they're gonna ship you back to Laval,
1: and then uh, yeah, <laughs> I might do like Creed on from the office, and just keep showing up and see if they notice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you could, if you could have two of you, I'm sure they'd love to have you around there still. Anything um, else? Anything else? it has been super fun as, as always. It's super great to catch up. I think last time I re-listened to part of our old last one. I also asked about languages in that one too. So for some reason, you just. You just get me going on the language learning stuff. So anyway, any, any last thoughts you want to leave our audience with? No,
1: no, you're doing a great job, David. So yeah, keep it up, keep the podcasts, uh, rolling and thanks for having me on. And if everyone wants, anyone wants to to talk shop or anything like that, like, feel free to leave them my, my email and we can, we can connect and jump on a call and love learning from, from everybody out there too. So that'd be, that'd be a great opportunity.
0: Yeah. We'll put links to everything to discussed in the show notes links where you can where you can where you can find gerbs i i'm i've resorted to your nickname that's just that's that's the you do that every time i
1: i I hear you on other on the other podcasts calling goldie and and all this stuff so like that's
0: good i know i'm i'm just i'm starting to i'm starting to get the hang of it i think i got it now well
1: did you call joel jackson jj or no
0: no i don't i still call him joel should i start calling him jj
1: You should start calling him JJ. I think
0: it's done. It's done. (laughs) And Twister,
1: when you get Peter Twist, you got to call him Twister.
0: I've been calling him Coach Twist in our emails. Is that the appropriate way to? uh, This, I, okay, I think this is hard. I actually, this is worth discussing on the podcast. Like, I'm emailing all these coaches who are like, like legends, and I'm like, and like a nobody, right? And do I, but I don't, I don't want to email Mike Boyle and be like, Mike comma. No, I want to say coach Boyle comma. Like, like, I'm not going to go Peter comma like, and coach twist, I think is appropriate. So I don't know if this is best practices. If there are any other young coaches out there who, uh, who have some thoughts on this, let me know, but that, that's what I'm going with. I think coach and then nickname is, is safe and always capitalize coach. I think, I think that's the other key. So that's, that's, that's all I have to offer in this conversation.
1: I think you'd message me and just said, Hey dude, you want to jump on the podcast?
0: Yeah, no, you're different. You, you and Joel and JJ, you and JJ, and a few other guys are different, like Tim. Like I'm just gonna call him Tim. But it, it's it's the older guys. You know, the guys with more tenure.
1: Yeah, for sure. That'll take me a little while to, to ever get to that to that point. But I uh, hear you. Yeah. But no, it's been great, buddy. Thanks for cool. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As always, you can find links and show notes, everything we discussed in this podcast at The official website of SCAF, growhockeystrength.com. Thanks for listening.